Well, it has been a long time since we were back in the book of Deuteronomy on Sunday mornings. I've had a number of people ask me over the last many months, when are we going to get back to the book of Deuteronomy? And that's because I began a series of teachings in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, back at the end of January 2020, which is almost exactly two years ago to the day. But after all that has transpired over the last 24 months, that seems like eons ago. It seems like a decade has passed in two years. Back when we began our study of the book of Deuteronomy, I called that series that we started back in early 2020, Bordering Blessing. And that's because the people of Israel, the children of Israel, when the events surrounding the book of Deuteronomy happened, Israel was on the border of the promised land of blessing. Moses, the leader of the nation of Israel at that time, he was preparing the people to enter into the promised land, to come into um, all that God had promised for them to have. And he's preparing for his departure and his death. So he's readying the people for a new leader. When we began our study in the book of Deuteronomy, I felt like we, as a church here at Cross Connection Church, we also were, in a sense, bordering what I thought was a period of blessing. Now, looking back over the last couple of years, the last 24 months, it feels like we actually left the border of blessing and we didn't end up going into the promised land, but instead we headed back out into the wilderness. For those of you that know the story of Israel through the books of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you understand what that reference is to, that they had spent some 38 years in the wilderness before they came to the border of the blessing at the time of Deuteronomy. And it feels like though we as a church were about to step into what, what I assumed, and I think several of our leaders here at this church assumed was gonna be a time of fruit and growth and blessing. Uh, we, I feel like we stepped back into a period of wilderness wandering for a little while. So the, la the last two years have been challenging. Though in some ways, it's, it's, it is hard to complain about all the things that have happened over the last couple of years because the fact is we are still here and God is still on the throne. The world has not come to an end quite yet, even though there are some people who feel like the world is at the verge of ending. We're, we're all still here and praise God, I believe God has work for us to do yet. But back two years ago, when we started the series in the book of Deuteronomy, the church had been in a period of growth. We were experiencing growth. Our leadership team was considering adding a fourth service to our Sunday morning services. At that point in time, we had three Sunday morning services here at the church. And things seemed to be looking as though they were moving in a very positive direction, a fruitful season. But fruitful seasons often follow times of pruning. And we, in, in some respects, have spent a couple of years, it feels like, being pruned as a ministry and as a church. And that's not just our experience here at Cross Connection Church. I have a lot of other pastors that I interact with in other places and they kind of feel the same thing. Seven weeks after we began our study in Deuteronomy at the end of January, 2020, our world, and not just our area here in Southern California, but the entire world was turned upside down by COVID. Two years later, there are some things that still feel rather chaotic and a little bit inverted. 
two weeks to slow the spread has turned into 24 months. So a couple years have passed with all of that. The only thing that I think we can be completely certain about is that God is on the throne and that he was not surprised by the things that we're going through. And I think that we can be certain that he is working. And though we cannot always see all of the details, we can trust, according to what we are taught in the scriptures, that God is working all things together for good. Somehow, in, in some way, God is working all things together for the good. Here in our service on Sunday morning, this last week in the sanctuary, our worship team sang a song just before I began teaching that actually referenced that passage of scripture from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And um, I hope that you are a person who is in a relationship with God. You love God. You have been called according to his purposes. Then you can trust that God is working. He's working in and through your life. And I believe he's going to continue to work in and through your life. And he's going to complete the work that he started in you until the day of Christ Jesus, until we come into his presence. But one of the challenging things when, there, when things are shaken up and turned upside down, when we are in the midst of what we would probably call trials, as the scriptures would call them, one of the challenging things in the midst of trials is that we can't exactly see what God is doing. We walk by faith and not by sight. And not only can we not see what God is doing, but we can't see how he's doing it or sometimes why he's doing it. Sometimes you might find yourself in a place where you're saying, God, why are you doing what you're doing? Why is this happening this way? We don't always have the answer to the why questions or the what and the how questions because we do walk by faith and not by sight. And in the midst of those circumstances, when we are walking by faith and not by sight, we are tempted to try to work things out on our own. Now, maybe you don't struggle with that temptation. I certainly do. I'm one of those people that's kind of like problem solver that wants to go in and try and fix things when things seem to be a little bit out of order and not going the way that I want them to. I think that the proper thing to do, though, when things are uncertain and unclear is to stop and to wait upon the Lord. But waiting upon the Lord is not always easy. And I'm not the most patient person. I don't like to confess that, but it is a reality. Maybe you struggle with being a little bit impatient as well. So I don't like to wait. So uncertain and unclear trials, they are a challenge, but they also, when you look at the scriptures, what the scriptures have to say about trials, they are an opportunity for our own personal growth. And I think also an opportunity for the growth of the body of Christ, the church. The apostle James in the New Testament letter, the book of James, he calls these trials, these times of things being uncertain, unclear, he calls that period of time the testing of our faith. And he explains in James chapter 1 that the testing of our faith produces good things in our life. One of the things that it, it builds in our life, or can build, I won't say that it's automatic, but one of the things it can build in our life is patience, and ultimately that patience leads to maturity. Patience will have its perfect work in you, that you will be complete or mature, lacking nothing. So an important truth to learn as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is that uncertain and unclear times of trial, they are oftentimes an opportunity for our growth in Christlikeness. God is trying to develop in me and in you character. He's trying to grow us more and more into the image of his children. And that happens if we can wait patiently upon the Lord, trusting in him 
through the midst of those things. So waiting patiently and trustingly in the Lord. Patient waiting has an has a perfecting effect in my life. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, he observed this when he writes this in Isaiah 40 verse 31. But those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those are really good words from the prophet Isaiah there in Isaiah chapter 40. And I think that it's very possible that someone watching this this morning probably needs to be reminded of that truth today. Waiting on the Lord is difficult, but it is also fruitful. King David in Psalm 27, verse 14, he says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. COVID has tested our faith and our patience. It certainly has tested my faith and my patience. And uh, me not finishing the book of Deuteronomy has been kind of a test of patience for some of the people in our church who have really wanted me to get back to the book. So now we're going to get back to the book of Deuteronomy, a, a book that we started just prior to COVID. And we, we would stop and start and stop and start throughout COVID. We'd come back to the book of Deuteronomy and then I'd, I'd deviate from it because there were some lessons that God wanted to teach us that were outside of this book. But I believe that now God has some things that he wants to speak to us. And so my goal in coming back to the book of Deuteronomy is to really zero in on those things that I think God wants to speak to us now as a church for such a time as this, the things that we're going through. And in coming back to the book, we do need to do a bit of a review because we left Deuteronomy in February of last year. And when we did, we were in chapter nine. So since we've been out of the book for a year, I need to remind you that in some ways, this book is a book of review, but this book is also, as I told you over the last times that we were in it, it is a primer for understanding the work of God through the rest of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is a book of review in that Moses, in this book, is reviewing the law of God. And he is reminding the people of God of God's working in and through them or with them in the period that led up to this point where they are now at the border of the promised land. They're getting ready to go into the promised land and conquer it. But the book of Deuteronomy is also a primer. It's a primer for the rest of the Old Testament in that Israel's history in the promised land and God's ministry to them through the prophets is really centered around all that God says in this book, the book of Deuteronomy. In other words, what happens with Israel and God's dealing with them after they enter into the land is really premised on everything that's outlined in this book. So what that means is that God's dealing with Israel in the historical books of the Old Testament, books like Joshua and Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and so on. And then his working with them through the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Obadiah, and so forth. It is all determined upon God's covenant that is outlined or detailed in this book. So what that means is that in many ways, a prophet in the Old Testament times, a, a person like Isaiah or a person like Jeremiah, a prophet could look at the things that were happening in society, in Israel, in his day. And then he could look at the book of Deuteronomy. And as he was looking through the lens of what God spoke in the book of Deuteronomy, then he could speak to the children of Israel authoritatively about what God was going to do. And many times, an accurate prediction from the prophet in the Old Testament is just the result of being able to understand conditional outlines. 
if this, then that. So if you're doing A, B, and C, then you're going to get D, E, and F. This was exactly what's outlined in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to see this when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 28. So coming back to chapter 9, we read this in Deuteronomy 9 verse 1. Hear, O Israel. You are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than yourself. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. So that's kind of a big leap to jump right back into the story. And I think it requires that we answer the question, how did Israel get to this point? Or perhaps how did we get to this point with Israel? And to answer that question, we need kind of a contextual ref refresher to see what exactly is happening in this passage. The children of Israel are on the border of the promised land. They are about to enter in to and take possession of the land that God had promised to their father Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. If you followed along with my message last week, I referenced the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. And after Abraham followed God, when God called him, we read this in Genesis chapter 12 beginning at verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The promised land was promised to Abraham and his descendants by God here in this passage in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. But at the end of Genesis, the descendants of Abraham or the children of Israel, they, they leave the land of Canaan. They leave the promised land. They go down to Egypt. And that's where they stayed for the next 400 years, more than 400 years. And when we pick back up with the children of Israel in the book of Exodus, they are now not just a large family in Egypt, but they are a sizable nation. They're, they're at least 200,000, maybe more, uh, people who are gathered there of the children of Israel in Egypt after 400 years in that area. And they are in bondage as slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. And there in their bondage, they cried out to the Lord God for deliverance. And God heard their cry. And so as God hears their cry, he appears to Moses in Exodus chapter three. And we read this in Exodus chapter three, verse six. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So the story of Exodus 
at least the first third of the story of Exodus, is the story of God's deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And Moses was to bring Israel out of Egypt to the mountain of God in Sinai. And that's exactly what Moses did. And there in Sinai, God established his covenant with Israel. And Israel built a tabernacle before the Lord so God could dwell in the midst of his people. And from there, Israel set out after two years. They spent two years in that area, um, receiving the law from God and building the tabernacle. And they set out from Sinai to go to the promised land. And that's really the story of the whole of Exodus and Leviticus. And then they come to the border of the promised land for the first time. And it's recorded in Numbers chapter 13. And they, they don't enter into the promised land the first time. Why don't they enter into the promised land? Well, the story of Israel in the books of Exodus and Numbers is a story of a stubborn, rebellious, and unbelieving people, a sinful people. And these stories, though they are 3,400 years old, are important to us because we are often also stubborn and rebellious and unbelieving. We are a sinful people as well. That's why in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, now all these things happened to them, to Israel, as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon him whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So Moses, just prior to Israel's entry into the land that God had promised to Abraham some 400 years prior to this, he now reminds Israel of all of the things in their history. He's reviewing their history for them to prepare them to come into the promised land. And as we come back to this text here in Deuteronomy, I want to remind you of some of the important things that we learned from this passage a year ago when we were in Deuteronomy chapter 9, when we studied this passage, and as we prepare to step back into Deuteronomy over the next few months. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. There we read this. But understand that today the Lord your God will cross over ahead of you as a consuming fire, and he will devastate and subdue them, your enemies, before you. You will drive them out and destroy them swiftly, as the Lord has told you. When the Lord your God drives them out from before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out those nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to keep the promise that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, I hope you see the theme as I was reading through that section of scripture. There's a repetition of a theme in that passage. We studied this a year ago in February of 2021, but it is important for us again to return to it. And it's worth considering again, these things over and over and over again, the truths that we find here in this passage. Israel was not delivered from Egypt or blessed with the promised land because of their righteousness. You have not been saved from bondage to sin and death because of your goodness. You and me, just like the children of Israel, we are a stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious people, an unbelieving people, and often we fall into sin. Don't think 
when you look at all the blessings and privileges that God has given to you, that these things are the result of your righteousness or your worthiness. As I shared a year ago when we were in this passage, beware of the snare of self-righteousness. The fastest path to a fall is self-righteousness. As Paul said in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul said there, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. To the Ephesians, Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we've not received the riches of blessing and grace because we are worthy or we are deserving. These things are given to us because God is good and because God is gracious. Israel was delivered because of God's goodness and because of God's grace. I was delivered from sin. You were rescued from sin, not because we deserve it, but because God is loving and he is merciful. God rescues us in spite of ourselves and because of his grace. He rescued you in spite of yourself and because of his grace. Prior to this section here in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses drove this exact same thing home to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord was devoted to you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of your slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that Yahweh, your God, is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Because God was faithful to his promise and because of his love, he rescued Israel. And for the same reason, he has delivered you and he's delivered me. Remember, the fastest path to a fall is self-righteousness. Look at what Moses goes on to tell Israel in the rest of this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning at verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God in the wilderness. You have been rebelling against the Lord from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you reached this place. You provoked the Lord at Horeb and he was angry enough to destroy you. Then down in verse 16, you quickly turned from the way the Lord had commanded you. Then verse 23, you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and did not believe or obey him. You have been rebelling against the Lord ever since I have known you. I'm really not sure I can say it any better than I did a year ago. So I'm just going to return to a point that I made on this exact passage a year ago. The safeguard against self-righteousness is to humbly remember my failures and God's grace. Let me say that again. The safeguard against self-righteousness is to humbly remember my failures and God's grace. This is a, a potent and important lesson that each of us need to be reminded of frequently. Our confidence is never in ourselves. Some of Christ's harshest words were reserved for the self-righteous of his day. One of the most self-righteous of the time of Christ, around the time of Christ, and before his conversion to Christ, was the Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus before he was the Apostle Paul. And he writes about his foolish self-righteousness in Ephesians chapter 3, where he says this, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, 
rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, because I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Paul, before he came to Christ, was had this bloated, self-important sort of view. He believed that he was perfect according to his keeping of the law. And it wasn't until Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, came to the recognition that he was the chief of sinners, that he could receive all of God's grace. And then after that, he became the apostle of grace, the one who wanted to share God's grace with everybody all the time. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. It was only after Paul saw his true self, saw who he truly was, that he could see clearly enough to understand that the flesh profits nothing. And immediately after speaking about his confidence in the flesh in Philippians chapter three, where he says, you know, there are some people who think they can have confidence in their flesh, I more so. After he talks about how he had the perfect pedigree and he lived according to the law, he says this in verse seven, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. Paul came to understand that it was not because of all the good things he had done or the good person that he was that he received God's grace and mercy and God's call and his blessing. And as a reminder to Israel that they had always been in the past a stiff-necked and stubborn and rebellious people with a, a sinful nature, Moses writes this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God in the wilderness. You have been rebelling against the Lord from the day you left the land of Egypt until you reached this place. You provoked the Lord at Horeb and he was angry enough with you to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant of the Lord that he had made, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I did not eat bread nor drink water. On the day of the assembly of the Lord, he gave me the two stone tablets inscribed by God's finger. The exact words were on them, which the Lord spoke to you from the fire of the mountain. The Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord said to me, get up, go down immediately from here. For your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way that I commanded them. They have made a cast image for themselves. God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He saved them with mighty miracles that they could see. They could see God's power. He brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground. He fed them with miraculous manna while they were in the wilderness. He gave them water to drink out of rocks. And then within a matter of months, they were dancing around a golden idol saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Now, Moses doesn't speak these things to them to demoralize them or to belittle them. He did so that, the, so that they would have an honest assessment of their nature. 
as Deuteronomy 9 continues, Moses reminds the children of Israel of their unwillingness to enter the promised land 38 years before that is recorded in Numbers chapter 38. He reminds them of their stubborn unbelief. He says in verse 23, when the Lord sent you to Kadesh Barnea, he said, go up and possess the land I've given you. And you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not believe or obey him. You have been rebelling against the Lord ever since I have known you. Again, Moses is not bringing these things up to belittle or demoralize Israel. He's, he's not trying to make them have a horribly low view of themselves, but he wants them to have a high view of God's greatness and God's love and his mercy. God's grace is all the more glorious on the backdrop of our sinful failings. Moses said, you have been rebelling against the Lord ever since I have known you. And yet, even in their rebellion, even in their stubborn, stiff-neckedness, if we could call it that, God loved them and he loves you as well. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you were saved. And he raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. You see, the awesome thing that we find when we read through the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, whether it's in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 7 or chapter 9, or it's in the book of Ephesians, is that God doesn't love me because I'm lovable. He loves me because he is love. That, that's exactly what he does. He didn't save me because I'm good or I'm worthy or there was something really great about me that, that enticed him to want to have me and his family. He delivered me and he saves you because he is great. And I have found that the book of Deuteronomy and the story of God's dealings with Israel in the whole of the Old Testament is a beautiful reminder of these great truths that God is love and he is gracious. And so I think what we're going to see as we go through the book of Deuteronomy is God's love and his grace unfolding through these sorts of things. And I hope that it becomes more and more of a reality to you as we go through these things. And so, Father God, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word and that you'd speak to us by your spirit and that you would continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds as we consider the way that you worked in and through the children of Israel for the purpose of bringing them into the promised land so that ultimately you would be able to bring through them the great promise that's given to us in the scriptures, the promise of salvation that's only found in you. So God, open our heart to your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.